We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. This is the Arsenal Vision Postmatch Podcast, and this is me, Lean, from ArsenalVision.co.uk. Apologies for the delay this week, but we are here eventually. Elliot, Paul and Tim will be discussing the 3-1 defeat, away to Barcelona, and um, we'll be back after the Everton game. So enjoy the pod, and back soon. Arsenal fall to controversial Champions League elimination as UEFA allow Barcelona forwards to, and I'm quoting here, score goals. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you should indeed block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. I am joined, as always, by Tim and Paul. We are here to discuss. We're not here. We're in your ears. We are in your earballs discussing the Champions League elimination of Barcelona. Tim is on Twitter at Stilberto. Paul is on Twitter at Pausing in My Pants. I'm not even going to let them introduce themselves because that shit just don't matter, yo. I want to thank everybody who's given this podcast nice reviews on iTunes and everybody who's followed the instruction of giving it five stars and then saying nasty, nasty things in the comments. You are by far the most appreciated people because you could have you could have done something else, but you chose to do it that way, and we thank you for it. Um, Tim stood in the pissing rain uh, to endure what was ultimately... Glorious defeat? I don't know. Does it qualify? It's a 5-1 aggregate elimination. We'll get to that and all that much more. But since he did stand in the pissing rain, I'll give him the first crack at it. Tim, you hate the stadium. The weather was awful. <laughs> yeah. How enjoyable was your experience in Barcelona? Uh, the, well, I love the city. The city is absolutely incredible. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, 
actually when we went out there we felt like the game was in the way of the, of the whole trip anyway to be quite honest and we had you know we, we arrived Tuesday lunchtime I saw you um, ate quite a bit of paella based on social Jesus. media. Yeah, yeah, we did a wine and tapas tour on Tuesday night, which was incredible. Hey, look, if you tap ass, that's your job and your, <laughs> your business, but you don't have to share it on the podcast, man. <laughs> and then, you know, we did, like, um, one of the Gaudi mansions on Wednesday, and that was lovely. I have a pretty on... Gaudi mansion myself. Oh, God, just, I'm on fire just today. Just the one. Just, keep <laughs> just the one and, uh, and then on Thursday we did a lovely walk which was all about um, the Spanish Civil War with a very very knowledgeable uh, lady from Galway in Ireland um, who basically oh. gave us like a five hour lecture effectively um, around some of the spots around Las Ramblas that were um, kind of key in um, the Spanish Civil War and the, the, the battle, the fighting that took place in Barcelona and all about Orwell and stuff like that and it was absolutely absorbing and fascinating and um, I think I walked about in two and a half days something like nearly 70,000 steps um, wow. so you know wonderful wonderful trip and the game was just you know it was almost like oh do we have to um, <laughs> and yes it's it's a dreadful stadium it's big um, but that's it it's it's very ugly it it really, really needs modernising um, in more than one sense, not just its appearance, but um, its safety. It's not a very safe stadium. I don't think they're used to 3,000 away fans up there, and the way we were herded out of the stadium was entirely unsatisfactory. We were crushed into a tunnel um, on the Metro for about 45 minutes after the game, um, and then we were crammed onto the metro could barely breathe it was it was quite dangerous and you know Barcelona like, like many clubs actually in the Champions League aside from all the gloss and everything that UEFA and Gazprom and all the mighty corporate overlords put on it a lot of a lot of stadia and a lot of stadia in the Premier League actually is not really that safe um, it's all a bit of an illusion that just because we've got all seater stadium everything's fine now when like in the Premier League most concourses would struggle to fit Tom Huddleston um, and you know like wow. any, any sort of emergency evacuation would just be impossible but anyway that's all kind of by the by it's a crumbling shithole of a stadium it doesn't even have a roof and brilliantly about two hours before kickoff, the heavens opened and it didn't stop raining for about five or six hours so we got thoroughly soaked um, as you probably saw on TV, most of the Barcelona fans saw that as a good reason not to bother attending. Um, and I think you got the sense they knew the time was over as well. Had there been anything hanging on it, I'm sure a lot of them, or sorry, a lot more of them would have taken up their seats. And yeah, the, the game, it kind of really felt like going through the motions because we already knew pretty much that it was lost. And we were just looking for maybe a bit of pride and a half-decent performance. And I think... In some ways, we got that. Um, some of the performances were quite encouraging. So I think, you know, um, Elneny was encouraging. Iwobi, you know, he put a lot of trust in Alex Iwobi to start him in that game, and he didn't look out of place at all. Um, but then, you know, you look at some of the goals, and listen, you've only got to look at the identity of the three goal scorers. And the Messi and Suarez goals in particular were not easy. But at the same time, you know, you leave Suarez unmarked in the penalty area, um, or if you're Hector Bellerin and you just let Neymar run off of you, 
then you know you're asking for trouble really. And so I was a little bit conflicted on the performance because I do think Barca were in first or second gear for most of it as well. Um, so it, you know it, it, it felt like a weird game really. It felt almost like an Emirates Cup game or something because there wasn't much intensity. Um, maybe aside from the five minutes after El Nenny scored, when I think we had Barca slightly panicked. Uh, maybe that's overstating it, but we looked a little. It looked a little more equal as a contest, but then they only had to rack it up another half a gear and and the, the game and indeed the tie was over. So um, it it was quite weird. Um, it was a really really nice trip. I really enjoyed it, and um, to be quite honest, the game was certainly the low light of the whole trip, as as I expected it would be. And while I thoroughly enjoyed that, Tim, I will point out that your comprehensive coverage has not suited my question and answer style or the uh, meticulous preparation I did in coming up with discussion topics here. But I, I do agree with everything you said. Um, so, Paul. Uh, I'd just like to add, Elliot, you mm-hmm. know, it's not all about Tim and Tim's experience. The, the, uh, the temperature in my apartment was a little lower than normal because I, I hadn't adjusted the thermostat so that's a shame so there was that that's a shame mm. did you did you at yeah. least have a nice cup of steam and gas prom i uh, <laughs> could explain the terrible coffee i'll look into that yeah all yeah. right all right so paul i'll let you have a crack at some of the topics um let, let's talk about the lineup the couple that tim that, left out yeah heavens opened up uh, in Barcelona, but they also opened up on social media when the the team sheet was announced. Yeah. Um, and I think the principal concerns uh, slash talking points were Flamini <clears throat> and Awobi. There was some discussion of a possible ankle knock for Cochran, but I don't buy that one bit. Um, without getting into what you thought of how they played, because we'll get to that, um, I'm going to give you strict rules and then let Tim have a free-for-all. Um <laughs> Why do you think the manager chose the lineup he did um, it, with respect to those players? Well, I was certainly in the what, who, wh- what, who category. I when tweeted I saw that the- uh, Flamini uh, wasn't able to completely kill the tie in the first leg, and the manager was giving him a chance to finish the job. Ouch. That was my job. It's quite remarkable, um, <laughs> you know, when you juxtapose his couple of minutes uh, which kind of killed off the tie, well, did kill off the tie uh, from the last game, to, oh, he's starting on, the, on the, uh, the team sheet, which I would think 0% of the Arsenal faithful called. So I don't get it. And having seen the game, still don't quite get it. I guess that tells you something about his frustration at the moment with Coquelin, but I still don't get it. Uh, um I mean, Flamini is, is never this, going to be... Are we be... seeing the, the Coquelin regression to maybe not being the the savior and Makalele, heir to Makalele's throne that we maybe had made him out to be? Maybe. Uh, I mean, that frustration, if that's what it was, I mean, maybe somebody has a better answer on that. I'm sure there were some theories floating around, but I didn't see a lot. Um I mean, you got to think it's some degree of frustration because there's nothing in theory Flamini can do better than Coquelin, apart from maybe be a bit more experienced and maybe kind of manage the tempo a little better, but not enough that would make a difference to me. Maybe it's the rashness of it that 
but uh, you know, Flamini runs him a close second on rashness at the moment. Did, did, um, did you think he was rotating with an eye towards an early Saturday kickoff um, for Everton, or do you think he genuinely believed this was the lineup he needed to chase a two-goal deficit? I mean, I you know that's I like that explanation because it makes me feel a little better about the manager's view on Coquelin, but. I don't know. I mean, I don't think he did a lot of rotating, uh, and I think Coquelin's fresh enough, but maybe there's some logic to that. Uh, well, I, I think the, that you have a challenge, right? Because if you want to rest people for Everton, maybe, maybe you can get away with that with the supporters, but maybe not with the players, right? I mean, Mesodozo and Alexis Sanchez aren't going to stand for being left on the bench at the new Camp. Yeah, I guess the only thing is if... You know, I, I think what we need to accept is that the manager's view of Flamini is higher than ours, and I think he's shown that all season long. You mightn't think he's great, but I don't think he actually thinks he's that much of a liability. He hasn't behaved that way at any stage during the season. I think he thinks he's a reasonable backup. Um, so I'm I'm still open to ideas on Coquelin. I have to say on Coquelin because he's been getting fairly well rubbished on passing and stuff. Um, actually, you know, he's not, he hasn't hit his form and he hasn't had his best partner by his side, though him and El Nenny seem to show some uh, some potential for the future. We'd need to see a lot more of it, but I, I kind of like what I've seen there. His passing's come on a long way. He's not a great passer. He's not a distributor. But it's pretty progressive. Go and look at his numbers against, you know, uh, many of his compadres, uh, whether it's uh, Conte or any of these guys. I mean, his numbers are creeping up there in terms of what he does. When I watch him with my eye, you know, he does a lot of good things. I don't think he's super uh, progressive. I still think the tendency for him I, in tight spots is to go back to the fullback or the center back. And I would argue that my bigger complaint is his ability to find the space to be available for his midfield partner is his weakest His weakest. Um, quality to his game that too often he marks himself out of the game and and the the game where I saw that happen maybe most noticeably was at United where he basically just stood on a United player when we were in possession and gave his his teammates no option yeah I agree with that last bit the most and I think it was most true at United but he was just back and we were kind of getting a bit of, a bit swamped, though he was probably part of the reason we were. If you look at Watford, he was our player who played pretty much the most passes. <clears throat> he was at 85 or something like that. Um, I think his position is getting a little better, but that's the weakest part of his game. I think his passing is progressive. He makes a lot more forward passes than we think. He uh, They can be quite incisive, and he swings some long balls. I'm not Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not going to the other side of he's great and he's way, you know, I just don't think he's, I think he's making progress. I think he's doing okay. I, I think uh, my, my point, Paul, is just that we have such a tendency to make arguments or discussions about players binary um, and people yeah. have fallen into that trap with me and Giroud. Either he's, you know, phenomenal and he's the next superstar or he's shit and he should be sold. I think yeah. Francis Coughlin is a perfectly fine player with some great qualities. I think he has limitations to his game, and I think yeah. that it may be possible that we need a superior ball player and, and sure. more uh, tactically I, I, astute player uh, in possession of the ball. But yeah, th- that sure. doesn't At mean he's top, shit. 
no, no. He's he's a very very good player. He, he's I th- I think he's a real asset. He's probably should be in our second eleven, uh, and you know starting maybe a third of the games depending on tactical calls. But at the top level in Europe, uh, um, the player in that position needs to re- be a really good passer, a really clever passer. And, you know, El Nenny could be a good counterweight to him. He seems to have an eye for a pass and moves it quickly and all that good stuff. But again, it's kind of, he, he's not Santi, but again, it's kind of relying on your compadre to provide a little bit of what Cochrane doesn't have. But, yeah. you know, Cochrane brings it. So it's one of those discussions. I think the, the me, to me, the Iwobi selection was really interesting. It just felt like Ferguson picking Welbeck, you know. A, a guy who can, with athleticism, young, clever, he's probably not going to be scoring the goal. You need to win the tie, but he might be. Uh, but he's going to create a lot of problems for them. I thought it was very interesting. He lined up on the left. Maybe, that was interesting, yeah. Maybe that's, you know, too much youth on the right with Bellerin and Neymar would have been a bad thing and maybe surprise him a little bit by moving Sanchez out there after all that's where he played with Barca most of the time uh, but it certainly uh, gave us a different look and maybe Iwobi in front of Monreal was a safer more conservative side for Iwobi to play on and of course uh, you're going to get a lot of fluidity with, with Welbeck and we're going to be out of possession and counter-attacking so Sanchez's starting point was was not always that important. He was coming from deep or from midfield very often on the counter, so his position was wherever the opportunity was, though tends yeah. to be right-sided. So I thought a really, really interesting lineup. I'm still scratching my head on Cochrane. Be interested uh, in Tim's thoughts out, yeah. on that too. Uh, well, so Tim, did you did you see this as rotation, or did you see this as as Arsene Wenger's, in his opinion, best team to get the result he needed? Um, <clears throat> a little from column A, a little from column B. If it was, if we'd drawn the first leg nil nil, I don't mm. think he selects that team, and that's the bottom line. I don't think Alex Awobi starts if we're level going into this game, and that's not to knock Alex Awobi. Um, <clears throat> and I thought there were good reasons for putting him in there. We we desperately lack um, a bit of creativity, someone who can open up a defence with you know a shift of feet and a nice pass and Joel Campbell's been doing that um, and without Joel Campbell in the team Alex Awobi is probably the closest to that kind of prototype someone who can carry the ball a bit um, and, and you know make a chance or two and I, I thought that was behind that and probably the reason he lined up on the left I've said on after the FA Cup games that he's played, I think it's quite a clever idea to play him in the number 10 role because it's the freest, least responsible role on the pitch with the maximum chance for glory. So I think it's a good place to play a young player. That said, Barcelona play pretty much without a right-back because Dani Alves is not a right-back in um, the way that European right-backs tend to play. He's very South American in his style and he's basically a winger. And if you're going to get at Barcelona, down their left side is a pretty decent bet because Dani Alves, even when he does get back, is not a good defender. Um, uh, you know, I see him a lot for Brazil, and he's exposed time and time again in a team that's not as talented as Barcelona because he can't defend. 
and and, and actually he's he's out of the he's pretty much in and out of the Brazil team. They're trying to replace him um, at the moment. So I think this was. If you assume we're definitely going to play Özil anyway, and of course he's going to play in the number ten role, the left wing when you're playing Barcelona is the next freest role in the team. With regards to Coquelin, um, I I think Paul just about got it there that it's a little bit of pun- punishment, as it were. And I think I've sensed or I've detected that Arsene Wenger is a little bit frustrated with his players at the moment. He was unusually candid after the Barcelona first leg, where he kind of stopped short. You know, he said the first goal wasn't acceptable because we talked about it and it's almost like it was the closest Arsene Wenger gets to throwing his players under the bus like he was saying look this didn't take me by surprise and it shouldn't have taken them by surprise because we spoke about exactly this scenario and that to me um, implied a little bit of frustration that they're not carrying out instructions effectively and he's just trying to say because he's under a lot of pressure he's getting a lot of flack and he was just trying to say look I told them um, about this um, I still think that brings a wider question as to why the hell they're not following instruction but that's, that's for another time so with, with Coquelin the, the way I see it at the moment since he's come back he's been nowhere near as effective as he was pre-injury and I think that's just because he hasn't got Santi Cazorla beside him he, you know, a, a bit like Aaron Ramsey although I think Ramsey's a better player with more to his game um, Ramsey's suffered because he doesn't have a complementary partner and without Cazorla neither does Coquelin really I think I agree with Paul I think Elneny could be that player and there's um, there's potential there and I think Elneny's going to get a nice run now till the end of the season largely because we don't have a lot of choice but I think he could be a very interesting option in terms of bringing up um, the level of functionality in our midfield but this um, I think this just speaks to the fact that Wenger would like to be able to sweep a bit of a new broom through this team um, and, you know, punish is probably the wrong word, but, but bring in fresh blood into the team because it's stale and it's not really been working. But he doesn't really have a lot to bring in. And starting 19-year-old Alex Awobi in the new camp um, really kind of heavily uh, suggests that and... I think particularly someone like Theo Walcott. I think if everybody was fit, Theo Walcott at the moment would be exactly where he was this time last year, i.e. an unused substitute. Because I think Wenger's come into another one of those periods where he's lost faith in him, um, at least temporarily, particularly with Welbeck back. And he'd probably prefer to not have to use him at all. And, you know, that, that's got to be a big wake-up call for someone like Theo Walcott, that Alex Awobi is starting in the new camp and he's not. Particularly when Theo has got, I think, a very over-egged reputation for, you know, scaring Barcelona because he scored against them once six years ago. Um, and, and I think it's massively overstated how much, quote-unquote, damage he's done to them other than in that one game some years ago. So I, I, I think it was... A, it was a little bit of a mixture. It, it's weird because when I saw the team, I thought it doesn't feel like he's resting players because mm-hmm. the only two players, really, if he was doing that, Ozil and Alexis wouldn't be playing. And really, the rest of them, to more or less, to kind of larger and smaller degrees, are not dispensable, but are a bit more interchangeable. If you're going there with Everton in mind and you want to rest players... Those are the two players you take out. 
and they both played 90 minutes. So I'm not convinced that's exactly what he was doing. But at the same time, like I said, if the tie was closer, I don't think that Flamini or Iwobi would have started. And he kept his back four pretty much intact um, as well. So it, it was really only two fairly surprising changes. And I think I'm leaning more towards that it was a sense of frustration with some of the other people that have been doing that job to this point. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I saw some people comparing Awobi's performance to that famous Jack Wilshire performance at home against Barcelona. Um, I think that's extraordinary hyperbole, but yeah. he was good. What, what did he you make good. of his performance? Yeah, he was he was good. He was um, that was you know putting aside his youth and how excited we are about him and, and things like that. Probably on its absolute professional merit, a seven out of ten performance, which then put into the context of a nineteen-year-old with such uh, a small amount of experience, particularly in games like this, is is doubly impressive. Um, I think there's there's definitely. We as supporters kind of over-egg um, the performances of young players and, and new players as well. Whenever um, whenever a new signing comes in, their first three games are always generally viewed very, very sympathetically. Um, probably the same with Iwobi because he's someone different, he's someone new. That said, uh, he, he had a very good game, I think. He looked pretty fearless. Um, and again, maybe that's a symptom of the fact that the game didn't have a great deal of intensity because it was pretty much over. It would have been interesting to see how he played, you know, if the tie was in the balance. But I, I thought we got a good performance out of him. Put it this way, I I, I wasn't pining for Theo Walcott or Joel Campbell or even the injured players who could have played there, like uh, Chamberlain or Rosicki. I didn't have the feeling that they'd have done a much better job than he did. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I I was impressed. Yeah, I, th- I think there's there's something that, there's something in him. I think that that is very encouraging, particularly when we lack creativity so much. And I think that I think we'll sign. Well, we should be looking at signing a couple of uh, creative players in the summer. But I wouldn't be surprised if Iwobi was considered, let's say, the long term replacement for someone like Thomas Rosicki. Yeah, I, I think you have to be really, really careful about jumping to conclusions. He's 19. He's not 16. He's not young, young. I mean, Coman at, at Bayern, he's 19, right? And mm. he's coming on to win Champions League ties against Juventus for them. So it's not like having a half-decent performance at Barcelona at 19 is unheard of. I'm not trying to take anything away from him, but we have seen young players have a few decent cameos and then vanish into the ether. Um which coincidentally is what I've been on today. So there you go. Um, Paul, on, on another day, in another season, in another dimension, we could have potentially made this tie interesting. 20 shots, three yeah. of the 20 on target. Um, do you think our forwards are aware that it is their remit to shoot on target and score goals? Um, Real question. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think there's so just looking at this game I think we were we were certainly shooting on sight I think were we shooting on target no uh, when I well think maybe that's the, the problem maybe instead yeah. of shooting on sight we should shoot on target 
Yeah. And these are shots yeah. from deep position. I mean, it's not just the shots, yeah. too, right, Paul? Like, we work yeah. the ball into good positions. We do. And then the moment passes us by. And I, to me, I, w- this I was is thinking where, like, about this a lot. That's the problem with shots and the shot metrics and going back and having to- a look at Totally agree. I was about to say the same thing. I think we did okay on the shots given, you know, position. But when you look at Suar- what Suarez did from where he was standing, I mean, none of our, I wouldn't say none of our players ever, but pretty much none of our players ever were going to score that goal. Um, you know, they get balls in dangerous situations and they make something extra happen. We get balls in dangerous situations and we shoot from those and we get blocked or, you know... We let, you know, extra touch players able to come back and recover. There was an extraordinary Mascherano tackle on Welbeck, for example. Yeah, But I think exactly. if you were being cruel, you'd say Welbeck needs to be a little quicker of thought there. and A little craftier. And even, yeah. you know, we're, we're giving Theo a hard time, which is fair enough. I thought actually in his very short cameo, it was one of his slightly better bad cameos. But he had that run through at the end where... I don't know who found him, maybe Ozil. Anyway, it was a really nice run, really good through ball, and I was pretty happy with it at the time. But when I looked at I went back and looked at it. It's on arsenalist.com, as usual. Um, he takes just too big a touch. It's not a terrible touch. It pushes him kind of wide with the keeper, and he tries to cut it back. But had he taken a somewhat more Messi-esque touch... And t- gotten a shot off. He was from, you know, it was a great angle, chipped the goalie, blah, blah, blah. And so I think we have a lot of that. You know, we judge him on the shot. Well, people judge him on all sorts of shit at the moment. But we judge him on the shot when he was pushed wide. But the real error is that he didn't do something a little clever in the box. And I think we have that all over the park when we get into the the final third. Um, quality, ingenuity, brilliance is now I thought we were much better and more creative though it was I think Barcelona were quite happy for a very open knife fight and they only brought out their big knife when they needed it Um, they got a goal from each one of their forwards right which like is the perfect counterpoint to our plight this season because the only goal we got was from our (laughs) our central midfielder from outside of the box running from deep yeah yeah, I mean, it was great, and it was a nice cutback and everything, and there's yeah, nothing wrong with that. It was a great Alexis, too. Yeah, it could have been Tony Cruz running in there, doing that to us. I'm not um, I'm not putting down getting goal contribution from your midfield. No. I, I just wish we got you some from our You want that as well, speakers. not instead. Yeah. Yeah. That's the difference between getting the second goal or getting the first goal and one go- going one goal up and then seeing how badly you can rattle. Because we had our chances before that. We definitely did. Well, okay. We had our chances after that. We should have, honestly, from a, from a quality in the final third standpoint, you know, Sanchez didn't score. He had some chances. Welbeck didn't score. I mean, I really liked his game, but, you know, the difference between our front three and not just their front three, but a fairly top front three. One of our buggers should have got one in the net, and that would have made it really interesting. It could have been the... Every, absolutely, could, we could have scored first, and sh- and from that standpoint, should have scored first. Well, I mean, the, the, you could sum up our season with goals we should have scored and didn't. And Tim, yeah, um, you know, I, there are a lot of people that were trying to take the positives out of the game, and I totally understand that because we're a club sort of scrambling for signs of of a revitalization, <laughs> signs of of 
of progress and and something to to get excited about. But I guess my question is, there was a lot of decent build-up play, and we were able to expose Barcelona to some extent. But is building up reasonably well only to conspire to botch the final ball or not not convert a shot into a shot on target? Is that is that praiseworthy? I mean, is is the optimism surrounding the way we performed warranted in your opinion? Um, probably not. I wouldn't, but I think relatively speaking, it, re- it represents an improvement, um, which isn't saying a lot. But it's, well, we, we it's, took the game to them a little bit more than we did at the Emirates, and I certainly yeah. can't understand. I mean, I get and that there was we some two- relief mixed in there too. I mean, this could have gone yeah. horribly horrible. Yeah, I, I mean, is is that what it is, Tim? Is this is this um, the the positivity surrounding the performance is only in relation to the expectation of the mauling that a lot of people presumed we would get? Yeah, yeah, I think there's there's definitely an element an, an element of that in there. I think um, we just we looked a little bit more cohesive um, as a structure than we have in recent weeks. We looked a little bit more organised. There was still the odd lapse in concentration and. In fairness, there are lapses of concentration in every single game that every single team plays, and yep. Barca will punish every single one of them. Yep. Um, they really will. Whereas uh, the, the kind of the phrase I kept repeating on the night was that performance would beat most Premier League teams home or away. Um, and I know different games are different, and the patterns are different, and uh, whatever else. But I think that level of Arsenal with that focus, that commitment, um, aggression, and organisation is not Arsenal at their best by a long by a long stick. But it's it, it would be enough to win most Premier League games. Um, I think is if the you convert the chances into goals, though, right? I mean, ultimately, yeah. If we put that exact performance on against a Premier League team, we'd still only we'd still only Score be able to win one goal, nil, right? So. Yeah, yeah, but I, I think, I was struck by something that Arsene Wenger said in his press conference this morning, um, we're recording on Friday, and, and it, it almost exactly mirrored what I was saying in the discussion I had last night, because I, I wrote an article that was a little bit critical of the way that Arsene Wenger put the squad together, and someone said to me, oh, well, if, but if we'd converted the chances, um, you know, we wouldn't be talking about the squad and, and the rest of it, but and I've said on here before, my estimation of us missing chances is because everything that happens before is so frantic that we don't have any control over games and that there's a real lack of serenity um, in front of goal as a result. And I also think that there's, you know, there's, there's hallmarks in our game at the moment where we lack confidence. And the, the biggest example of that for me is when we concede goals. And lately there's been this trend of Arsenal looking okay but then conceding a goal, and for 20 minutes the whole world falls apart and everything goes to pot. Um, and that, that didn't actually happen against Barca, so I think that's slightly encouraging, although whether Barca at their absolute in top gear, um, it, it might have been a different story. So, but, and, and sorry, in, in his press conference this morning, Arsene Wenger said, I can't remember the exact quote, but he alluded to the structure behind the strikers. He said, basically, if we are playing better, if the football was a little bit more cohesive and organised, they'd score more goals. And I don't doubt he's trying to take draw a little bit of the sting away from the strikers, because there's a lot of focus on this now. A lot of the media have been picking up 
how kind of how how much we've lacked clinical finishing, and I don't doubt he's trying to draw the sting a little bit. But at the same time, when you've got you know Murtasaka has come out a couple of times in recent weeks, and I can kind of understand because Arsenal's defence get absolutely no protection um, from their teammates who just don't work hard enough for me off the ball. And he must be very frustrated because his reputation is taking a kicking. And I think it's undeserved because he's a good defender. But everything is so... Whenever a team attacks us, there's so little organisation that the defenders are just forced into panic because there's so little protection ahead of them. And he's made a, he's had a couple of sound bites recently where he's alluded to Arsenal needing to score more and take their chances and, you know, take the pressure off of us. Um, I think is kind of what he's saying and I'm not sure how healthy that is and that to me speaks to a little bit of internal tension not so much as personalities but I've sensed from a couple of his interviews he's kind of saying you know come on guys give give us a break back here you know if you're not going to get back and help us defend then at least score goals and you know so we can perhaps win games 4-3 rather than losing them um so, and I think Arsene Wenger maybe recognises that. So, when he was he was talking this morning about the game behind the behind the strikers being a bit more cohesive, that they'd score more goals. I think that's what he's alluding to because it's such a huff and puff to get those chances and to get those the ball in those areas. And usually we're under pressure as well. Um, usually we're a goal down or we're drawing with a couple of minutes to go and. You know the, the serenity goes in the finishing. Whereas you look at a game like Hull in the FA Cup, for example, the finishing was really good. We took pretty much all of our chances, and we ended up being flattered um, a little bit in a four-nil win. And that's because we went one-nil up, and you see a lot more. And we had control of the game, and you see the finishing all of a sudden magically come, becomes better. So I, I think there's an element to which we may be taking baby steps here where we've got a player like Elneny who seems to be knitting the midfield together a little better. I think Welbeck is playing, albeit he's not terribly clinical in front of goal, but he's certainly contributing a bit more than I think Giroud and Walcott were. And that maybe we're taking baby steps towards playing better and from there the goals will come. Whether it will be quick enough to rescue our season, um, who knows? But that, I know. that's my reading of it. I know. The answer, the, the <laughs> I answer think is we'll no. <laughs> um, Paul, you want to add on our uh, finishing yeah, or lack thereof? Yeah, a couple of things there. Adding to Tim's discussion of ours today, one of the things, and again, I agree on drawing the sting. I think he had a double motivation for addressing it, but he said something to the effect of that the number of chances we're creating at the moment are probably uh, pretty good right up there at the the top of the league which is probably true for the season but I think we've had a dip over the last few months but we're we're going back up again what he did emphasize was the lack of quality of the chances not the quantity might be the issue um on the potential on the positives I guess my feeling on it is I think there's a lot of positives from the game but they're potential positives. They don't mean anything if they don't if they disappear in the next breath. You know what's real from what we saw. We don't know till we go to Everton and perform. And I, I kind of have a thought on what's real, by the way. 
Yeah. A, a, non-com- okay. a non-comedy one. I think the manager has settled on or settled on something earlier in the season, sort of the September, October-ish time frame that was really working when we clicked a little bit, which was using Ramsey on the right wing to add that extra midfield presence when we were building up the play. Right, so you'd have Coughlin, Cazorla, yeah. Ozil, and then Ramsey could come into the midfield and add a little more control. Um, I think that's maybe what he was going for by including Iwobi was to say, "I'm going to go for the same kind of thing. I'm going to have my El Neni Flamini, which is you know El Neni being sort of the heir apparent to, to Cazorla in this in this theory, and Ozil, and then Iwobi becomes that fourth that fourth possession-oriented player who can come into the midfield during build-up and add an element of control um, to support the runs of Welbeck and the sort of individualistic, dribbly nature of Alexis Sanchez. Um, And I do think that in possession, that works. Um, I think Elneny is aping the Cazorla role pretty well. I think that we are still short the player we need as a holding midfielder, but we, you know, that nothing's changed about that. I think Iwobi has shown that at least notionally, based on his performance in Barcelona, he can do kind of what Ramsey does in that system, and that Alexis looks a lot better with Welbeck up front. So I do think that that setup in possession solves some of the kind of frantic problems that that Tim was referencing that we had when we were playing with a more traditional two-man midfield of of Ramsey and, and Flamini or Ramsey and Coughlin with just Ozil by himself in the 10 and then three forwards in front of him where we just never built anything up through the middle of the, of the park. So I'm sorry to interrupt there, Paul, but that that is what, what I see yeah. about, about that using that group of personnel that way. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, but the one thing I wanted to add to what Tim was saying, I can't remember who was quoted in an article during the week, but it was quite striking. I mean, in a way, there's nothing novel about this, but he said, our manager told us how to beat Arsenal. Uh, and the, the key elements were, they will get four players ahead of the ball and leave one man in midfield. And I'm like, what's he mean, one man in midfield? We've, we've got like two and then the one ahead of them. And, but, but that's the reality of it. If you're going to, for a lot of, Premier League teams, there will be enough times in a game. And, and th- you know, this is my issue with Wenger blaming the players in the first leg against Barcelona. I mean, over 90 minutes, did he not think that at some stage we'd have that situation where Per has to follow his attacker forward, where Ramsey is coming back, Coquelin moves to that area? You know, over 90 minutes, that's going to happen once or twice the way we play the way he sets us up to play, to expect that there won't be a moment or two when that happens in a game, seeing as it's happened every season for the last five years. You know, to me, that's a bit of naivety to say, I told them not to do that. Well, sorry, actually, we're kind of set up for that to happen at some stage over 90 minutes. There is no, you have never produced a team in a 4-2-3-1 that has been disciplined enough, and I'm not really criticizing his discipline. Um, it, you know, we're kind of set up to play that way. It's going to happen a couple of times in a game. So to put it on 
the players, I'm like, well, we're set up to play that way. We, you, yeah, we you're didn't... basically saying the system creates those kinds of opportunities for the opposition. Yeah, not, against not Barcelona. I mean, come on. That's not going to happen a few times in a game. Let's be real. It doesn't matter what personnel we put out there. The pro- our problem was we didn't play well enough ourselves and score yeah. to put them under pressure. You know, after 70 minutes against Barcelona, that happens when legs are getting a little bit more tired and while we're chasing a goal in a game. He didn't tell them not to chase a goal. It's going to happen against Barcelona. They're going to, get, they're going to catch you like that. We had three men around Neymar, and he danced through them because he's that freaking good. Now, you could critique every one of those three players, but... But, but I don't that's know the that problem. they were really not following his orders. No, that's not the problem. The problem is the first goal, right? The problem is the first yeah. goal. It's Gabriel giving the ball to Koscielny in a bad spot, Bellerin going totally to sleep, the midfield being totally switched off and not being more in contact with and closer to the space in front of the center back. So Koscielny has two options. All the Sorry, way back I, was, to, I was actually referring to the goal in the first no, game. No, no. Where I, I yeah. know, right, right. But, I, but I'm, yeah. I'm saying that that kind of goal... Yeah. isn't the problem, right? The problem yeah, is yeah. the goal where the system lets us down, the individual player decisions let us down, the, the disorganization lets us down. 7 a.m. kickoff today, Friday, did a great blog you should read on sort of the bullet points of an Arsenal loss and how we ticked all of them against Barcelona. And one of them is disorganized defending. And, Tim, let me give you this one for a minute. There, That first goal, I don't necessarily need feel the need to break down the Suarez goal, because I think there was poor defending there, but it's also just sort of a brilliant finish. And the third goal, the tie was already done. The game was pretty much done. Um, the ball just falls to Messi. But the first goal is, to me, everything wrong with Arsenal this season in a way. It's Gabriel giving the ball to Koscielny where he doesn't want it. It's the midfield not coming back to help Koscielny. It's a a turnover in a really dangerous position made worse by Bellerin being totally switched off and letting his guy get behind him. Um is that for you, is that first goal that Barcelona scored the kind of goal that this Arsenal has given up way too often this season? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it alludes perfectly to what I was saying earlier, you know, about the, the level of dysfunction in front of the defence. And um, I was I was on uh, the Austin America podcast last night with Tim, actually, from 7am kickoff. Yeah, and we strongly recommend bit. everyone listen to that, by the way. Yeah, we spoke a bit about this, and actually we were saying, if you look at, um, like, uh, immediately when a goal is scored, if you can, take a freeze frame and have a look at where the Arsenal back four are, because it's not it's actually not very often that you say, well, there's Bellerin at right back, there's Mertesacker, centre-half, there's Koscielny, there's Monreal, roughly where they should be. Have a look the moment the ball goes in the net, they're all, all over the place um, a lot of the time, and no, none more so than... You know, the Watford's second goal um, in the FA Cup last week when, and you know, Troy Dean is holding that ball up for a good four or five seconds and nobody runs back. And uh, one of the conclusions that Tim and I came to, we both had the same feeling that even when Arsenal players do run back, they, their mind is not on winning the ball back. Their mind is on the ball breaking so they can attack. And that's really, really well emphasised by Ramsey at Old Trafford when Ander Herrera scores. Ander Herrera kind mm-hmm. of just strolls through the midfield, absolutely nobody on him. And actually, if you watch it from behind, Ramsey runs back, but he gets drawn into the ball because his thought is that there are like two Arsenal defenders on Marcus Rashford and he runs over, and it's not to tackle Rashford, it's because he thinks if one of those guys gets a tackle in, 
the ball's going to break and I can attack. So I think there's a lot of that mindset um, at Arsenal. I think that might have happened to Bellerin as well. I think he got drawn slightly in field because his mind was on perhaps making an interception and then starting an attack rather than, right, I've got, I've got to defend this first and foremost and worry about that afterwards. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's very symptomatic of the, the type of goal that we've been giving away. It's, it's two or three small mistakes that lead to one, you know, a bit of a clusterfuck, really. And actually, the reason Gabriel gives the ball to Koscielny that he doesn't want and the reason Koscielny then makes um, a bad pass is because there's nobody for them to pass to. Uh, there's nobody... When Gabriel has the ball... And that's been no, happening a lot. Exactly, exactly. There's no Mikel Arteta there. There's no Santi Pazola to take the ball off him and say, right, thank you very much. You've defended and, you know, you can give the ball to me now. I'll take it from here. But instead, Gabriel's got the ball and everyone's too far forward. Nobody's showing for him. And he kind of panics and gives it to Koscielny. And then Koscielny kind of has to, he actually has to run with the ball just to get near an Arsenal shirt and... You know he's he, he's Lauren Koscielny. He's not he's not. You know you shouldn't expect him to beat three players before he can find a colleague. And so it's yeah, all he kind a, of... he actually rounds his man. I think it's Messi. And you, uh, I kind of looked at it a bunch of times to see who he could pass to. And you got Flamini to his right, but Flamini hasn't moved forward and hasn't anticipated where he would need to pass to. He's close, but no cigar. There's a great um, freeze frame on that 7 a.m. kickoff blog, Paul, where right at the moment where Koscielny's being closed down by the second guy, there's not a midfielder within 15 yards of him. Yeah, uh, and, and the thing is, I think Flamini's actually close enough, but he he hasn't been smart enough to to progress to give him the angle to pass Yeah, to there's him. no passing lane there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and on the other hand, it, I mean, it's, something, it's no excuse because we'll face it more and more in the future, but credit to Barca. I mean, Messi presses Koscielny and from behind. Suarez does brilliantly. He, uh, he blocks. He's kind of got his eye on Monreal for the pass to him. Uh, Koscielny gets past Messi. Then he immediately steps into that passing lane to cut that off for Koscielny. And at that point, Koscielny is like, oh, fuck, and leaps on him. The ball breaks loose, I think it's Rakitic, then knocks it up to Suarez, who first times it pretty much to Neymar. I mean, they do brilliantly. That, you know, that's Suarez at his best, uh, that kind of uh, pressing mentality and the poacher and the, the eye for the quick turnaround. So, I mean, they got us good, but we're going to face a lot of that. And yeah. I've, um, I've not read Tim's blog yet, but I'm guessing one of the things he included, because we spoke about this as well, is where that's worrying is that teams no longer have to press us constantly um, for 90 minutes and tire themselves out. They can do it selectively, just like Barcelona did, because this Barcelona is not the same as the one we played five years ago who just absolutely strangled the life out of you with their work rate. Um, Barcelona don't really do that anymore. This, this is a very top-heavy team. They're structurally a lot looser you see a little bit more of the ball. Um, you can get at them a little bit more. But their front three is just so good that they can win them games pretty much single-handedly. Um, and, and you know, I, I, what Tim was saying was that what this means is that a team like Watford as well, 
Watford only came with two central midfielders. I think they put Kapui wide to kind of make a three, but they came to us with two strikers. And because Arsenal don't have these ball players in midfield, teams don't even have to put five in midfield anymore. They can put two up front because basically Arsenal have only really got two in there. Um, and none of them are really that great at passing and circulating the ball. And, and I'm hoping Elneny can um, change that a little bit for us. But when a team like Watford can come to the Emirates, play 4-4-2 and keep us at bay pretty easily, and they, they weren't pressing the life out of us either. They were we should have been pressing moments. the life out of them. Exactly. <laughs> what we should have been doing. They had no creative players in the middle of the park. They packed everyone in the midfield. We could have counter-pressed them or pressed them in their half and totally choked the life out of them. But And you know, you know uh, Jurgen Klopp from his time at Dortmund had this, this quote. I think he said something like, um, the Gagan press is our most creative player. And for a team like Arsenal, who don't really have too many ball players at the moment, um, and, and I think this speaks to the, the blog you wrote, you wrote a couple of weeks ago, Paul, about actually with the likes of Welbeck back, we can be a bit more of a front foot team and press teams. And, you know, I think, I think that's an avenue very much worth exploring because we don't really have enough ball players at the moment and actually relying on turnovers slightly higher up the pitch might be a decent way to go. Yeah. Ultimately, I think for this Arsenal team to achieve more, obviously we have to convert more of our attacking chances into goals, but all three units have to feel more like a system. And I think what you guys would probably agree with is they feel like distinct, discrete, independent units. There is a defensive unit, that has some talent. There is a midfield unit that has some talent. And there is a forward unit that has some talent. They are not a system, a unified system. They and you look, you look at our squad, it's full of good players. There's, there's not many players in that squad I want rid of. Yeah. I don't, I don't, look, I think we need upgrades in a couple critical positions, yeah. namely striker and, and probably in the center of midfield. But yeah. to your point, I am perfectly prepared to say that the, the players that are in the squad are are producing insufficient results and performances based on the, the caliber of talent that's there. Yeah. Um, I want to just throw a couple statistics out at you. Just, you know, one, one of the players that I admire, not because of his theatrics or his personality, because he's a see you next Tuesday, but Sergio Busquets is probably the quintessential modern holding midfielder, much like Makalele was in his day. I think Busquets is today. Um, and you look at him, he played the most passes of anyone in his team, 88 passes. He did it at 92.1% efficiency, uh, completion percentage. He played six long balls. All six were accurate. He was never dispossessed. He never turned the ball over. Um, you know, that that is the modern... He He's sort of what Mikel Arteta would be on his best day, in, you know, if he were more athletic <laughs> and more talented. I, I think that's... That's the model of what we want. Then you look at a Francis Cochran. Admittedly, he, he only played a half, but 33 passes in his half, 78% efficiency, dispossessed twice, turnover once, um, five long balls, one was accurate. Now, I get it. Busquets plays in a better side, period. He has better players around him. But I, I, I think it's just an interesting counterpoint. That's all. It doesn't, doesn't have to be dispositive. It doesn't have to be the, you know, the, the proof of anything. It's just interesting to look at the two of them compared head-to-head like that. Um, I want to finish with just a, a quick question about Arsene Wenger and Arsenal in, in Europe. Um, 
It's 5-1 aggregate defeat, Paul, and it's six straight years of going out at the round of 16. First of all, with respect to this season, it's hard when you play the team that everyone sort of presumes will win the Champions League and one of the, again, great teams of all time, arguably, and certainly one of the best forward lines we've ever seen. Um, Their front three has 106 goals this season, which is astounding. For you as the 5-1 aggregate, despite the competition, the level of competition, an underperformance, something that we we should... be striving to do, obviously striving to do better than, but should have done better than? That's for you, Paul. Do we just bore Paul off the pot? <laughs> it's possible. It's always possible. possible. My, now, look, I'm going to I guess it's Paul's internet. So you know what, Tim? It's a fascinating yeah. question. I'm sure you were chomping at the bit to get to it. Since I yeah. can't currently hear Paul say anything, why don't you tell me if you think that the 5-1 aggregate defeat to Barcelona is an underperformance? Uh, yes, it is. It is an underperformance because when we played them five years ago, we lost, what, 4-3 on aggregate? And the year before that, it was 6-3. So it's our worst performance against them in, in some years. And, and, um, they, and they were once-in-a-generation kind of teams at that yeah. time. And we were presumably mired in the heart of what was hello, hello, hello. What, what's kindly known as all right paul we hear that you're back you you now pipe down now you lost your chance um <laughs> uh uh you know we were in the heart of the banter era then and 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 arguably did better yeah yeah absolutely it of course it's an underperformance i i don't think anyone expected us to go through and actually it's kind of symptomatic of our champions league campaign this year because you look on the face of it we finished second in our group and nobody would have expected us to finish above Bayern and we've gone out to Barcelona and nobody would have expected us to beat Bayern and it says a lot about the Champions League and the glass ceiling and, you know, I, I think I've been very vocal about how tedious I find the competition as a result. Um, however, when you look at the manner, really, in which those things have come about, you know, really stumbling through the group, Last season, we really kind of stumbled through our group as well. There were some poor performances in there. We got Mullard um, in Dortmund. And then, you know, basically the the amount of good Champions League performances over the last three years, I think. Because then in 2013, were we in with Dortmund and Napoli and Marseille? And again, we, uh, you know, and I, I accept that's quite a even group and quite a difficult group and we got through it but again you know there was Napoli at home which was brilliant one one of our best ever Champions League performances I think and you know we beat Dortmund away and that was a good backs to the wall performance but it just feels like over the last two seasons the amount of good Champions or even above average Champions League performances um, are very very few and far between and I don't know I mean, I I think that Arsene Wenger, from his kind of words, has accepted that the Champions League is a little bit of a pipe dream now and that maybe we've missed the boat on that. In terms of winning it during his his tenure, um, you know, he, he said that before the Zagreb game, the first group game, um, when he was asked, can Arsenal win it? He said, we're not dreamers. And he said, you know, after the first leg, and of course everyone knows this is true but it's unusual for Wenger to be candid about something like this he said everybody knows that Barcelona are better than us and he sounds not quite jaded but almost resigned to the fact that he's just not going to win the Champions League and I do wonder if that's permeated um, towards the group so I think 
well, not to be an asshole, but he builds the team. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Why Why are we that far? And I, look, I get it. All right, for people screaming, they're Barcelona. We're not Barcelona. Come on. Well, you know what? Barcelona doesn't win the Champions League every year. Teams like Atletico Madrid and Dortmund do get to finals. Yeah. Like, it's not, it's not impossible to think that he could use the resources we have to be closer to the top. Yeah, we should be competing better than we are. I don't think, I think most people are realistic enough to know that, you know, we shouldn't be winning it per se, but we should be making a better fist of it. Um, and I, I just wonder if he senses he's getting towards the end of his time at Arsenal, he just doesn't see the Champions League happening, and what he really wants to do is win the league again. And I, you know, I, I'm purely speculating that that might be absolute rubbish, but. I, I sense a kind of staleness about Arsenal and the Champions League. Yeah, it is stale. And, and I mean, I love the Champions League. If you've ever heard me on other podcasts or, you know, read back when I wrote blogs, like, it is a competition that means a lot for me, and in part because as an American, one of the first things you could watch regularly of European football on television here in America was the Champions League. Um and so it was a competition I had great affection for, and also it measures you against presumably the best. Um, so it is frustrating that it's mediocre second place finishes followed by soul-crushing round of 16 defeats. And it'd be easy to write it off as we get Barca and Bayern every season, but we got humiliated away to a bad Milan side and humiliated at home to a bad Monaco side. So, you know, it's it's happening when we have good draws as well. Um Paul, Elliot, can I add something quickly well, I, to that? Yeah, I was just basically going to ask you the same question. What do you make of where we are as a Champions League contender right now, and in particular losing 5-1 to Barca? Well, so I think we're disappointing. I think this has been disappointing. I think we've been disappointing in the last couple of years. Some, some. It's such a hot take. It burned out the internet. <laughs> Literally, the hottest of takes. Great, uh, but ultimately futile performances. Oh, shit, you can't hear me? Hello? Hey, I heard the part that was important. They were futile performances, so that part I got. Keep going. So can you hear me? Oh, yeah, yeah. We can hear the parts we care about. All right. Um, He did talk today, and I don't know how I feel about this, about just how bruising the Premier League is, and that it's about to get worse because the mid-table tiers are going to have better teams next year again more there's money. going to be more talent yeah they have uh, more money yeah keep going yeah um so you know I, I but it is kind of waving the white flag on it i guess my feeling on the the champions league if i were to ignore that and say we have no excuses when i look at where we are in the rankings just on gut feel it's hard to see if we even make the top 10 in the champions league european teams if no we way. do we're we're probably around the number 10 mark but not higher probably lower and that's piss poor really for arsenal we've got the resources to be you know, fifth, sixth, seventh, argue it how you like i mean and not to sound y- like that guy but the reason we moved to the emirates was to not be Yep. At the same level. <laughs> and, and that part of it worked. The 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 balance sheet part of it worked. Uh, you know, you would expect that some years we overperform a little bit. Well, we haven't in Europe. And some years we underperform a little bit. We have done that. So we should be able to bop around. You know, we should be able to make a quarterfinal and the occasional semifinal without needing, you know, kind of BVB-style magic to get to the final. 
but we're not there. We're we're a ways off that. And you know, maybe there's merit to the the Premier League is now just too bruising for teams to actually be good. It's going to be really interesting to see Pep, Pep next year and see how that evolves. We got Klopp. Um, you know, maybe Arsenal can can steal Tuchel or something. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the, here's my my hot take. I think Arsene Wenger revolutionized English football. I think there was a period of time where his knowledge of the French market and his approach to professionalism and as as it relates to being an athlete and a footballer was unheard of. Um, I think his drive and his passion and his ruthlessness were exactly what the club needed, and he transformed the club into the modern giant it is now. I don't, you know, there's a lot of fervor over his I built this club comment. We're not even going to discuss it because I think it's twisting the intention of his words, if not the literal words. I think he meant I, I built it up from where it was. I don't think Arsene Wenger is so arrogant as to say he built Arsenal. So no, no point discussing that. But I think he is arguably as good an FA Cup manager has, as a, there has ever been in English history based on the number of FA Cups he's won. I think he has been a C-plus, C-minus manager in Europe. I think Arsene Wenger has never been a good European manager. I think he has never been particularly effective in the Champions League, and I think his Champions League record is pretty dire. That's my hot take. I think matched up against the best, matched up against the best managers in the game, he has been found wanting tactically in those battles. I think he underperformed in Europe with the Invincibles. I don't think anybody's going to argue or debate that. Um, Rafa Benitez got the better of him with a vastly inferior Liverpool team. There were bad knockouts to teams like PSV, um, obviously the Chelsea elimination, Monaco, AC Milan more recently. Um, In general, I think he has underperformed in Europe. And we can debate why that is. I think the rigors of the Premier League and the fact that the Premier League doesn't help you with the schedule is part of it. But I think Arsene Wenger himself probably desperately wants the Champions League more than anyone, and I'm sure he is as disappointed as anyone when the Champions League campaign ends. Um, If he is sticking around another season, and I still think he will, nothing would make me happier than seeing him turn out his pockets, empty them, spend what needs to be spent, go full out on the best possible strikers he can find and best possible midfielders he can find. I have no problem if he leaves us totally skint for the next manager. You know what, Arson? Go for it. See if you have the tactical noose and the skills necessary to to give yourself that one shot. Because there should be... We're never going to compete with Barcelona and Real Madrid and Bayern Munich season in, season out, season in, season out. But on a one-off basis, we should be able to punch above our weight. Um, and I'd love to see that happen. It's just, for me, the Champions League is a competition I adore. And for the last... Basically, 15 years, I feel like I've been watching us underperform on it. Um, does anybody have any major disagreement with that? Tim? Nope. Paul? Um, no, unfortunately. I mean, maybe the degree a little bit, but yeah, basically, yes, I agree. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I think we should leave it there. I, I, let, let me say this. Uh, there's one other question I guess I want to get to really quickly. I mean... We've got Everton early kickoff Saturday. Uh, I'll start with you, Paul, just quickly. Do you think we'll see the same 11, um, maybe minus Flamini plus Cochran? What, what do you expect him to do for, for Everton? Uh, well, he has me rattled after that last lineup. Um, well, I guess the big decision and everything flows backwards from there will be center forward. 
surely got to be Danny Welbeck. Um, so I think it, it, uh, then the lesser decisions, you know, Iwobi, will he keep his place? Probably not. I think the boy's probably knackered anyway. Um, so you think Cam- Campbell comes back in? Uh, not from a tactical standpoint. I, I don't know if that, is, if that makes the most sense. I mean, I'd like to. I guess if he thinks Iwobi's fresh enough, uh, the kid's he could 19, give them a real. He's fresh enough. <laughs> yeah, but still, it takes a lot out of you. So I guess that's a judgment call he has to make. I think if Iwobi's fresh enough, I'd like to see him start. Definitely okay. El Neni in the midfield, and then who best to bang up against Lukaku? I could see Per coming in for that one uh, yeah. to bring a little bit of stability and some height. Though, I mean, Lukaku is about a lot more than height, but uh, he tends to drift wide to the right, I think. He's been used that way against us in the past. So Koscielny's over that side. So between him and Monreal, uh, per for a bit of height. Uh, Those are kind of my thoughts. Tim, Everton are dreadful at home this season, dreadful at home against top half sides, and dreadful defensively. So how bad do you see us losing this weekend, and what lineup does, and what lineup does he use we, for the loss? We, we do like uh, giving boosts to these teams Struggles, uh, yeah. who have some kind of bad record or bad sign. Um, I, I, really, I think it will all depend on the first goal um, in this game. I think that's going to be absolutely huge in deciding who wins it. In terms of the lineup, I I think Gabriel will keep his place because Gabriel always seems to start against Everton. He started Gabriel against Everton back in October, November when we played them last, and he played him in the home game against them at the end of last season. He left Pear out and put Gabriel in, so I think he might play. I don't think we'll see Awobi again. I think we'll see Joel Campbell because he does a fairly similar job in that he's effectively the creative presence in the front three. I think we might see Giroud play up front because Giroud has um, a, re- a reasonably good scoring record against Everton. And Everton suck at defending set pieces. They've conceded lots and lots of goals from corners and free kicks this year. And they conceded a header to Giroud and a header from Koscielny against us at the Emirates um, back in November. So... I expect to see Giroud in there. Maybe Joel Campbell on the right. And maybe Danny Welbeck on the left. Um, I, I think he'll do a little bit of tinkering up front. The midfield, I don't think he's... Uh, oh, no, sorry, I've, I've forgotten about Sanchez. Alexis there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Alexis on the left. Yeah, I mean, um, if you don't put Sanchez Joel, in there, right. who's going to give the ball away seven times? <laughs> <laughs> and Boo. the midfield... Will will be Coquelin, Elneny, and Özil because we don't really have anyone else. But th- those three seem to work well enough. So I, I think this one is all about the first goal. If we get it with Everton, you know, possibly thinking about the FA Cup a little bit because they've got a replay. Um, no, sorry, they're through. They've aren't got they? a Wembley semi-final in a they've few weeks. They've got a Wembley semi-final in a few weeks, and they're in mid-table, so they're not really going to do anything in the Premier League. Um, if we lose the first goal, then you know the fatigue starts to set in, the confidence starts to drain, the doubt starts to come in. It would be a long way back. Um, but if we go 1-0 up and we start to control the game as we can and we start to look a little bit more sparky and cohesive, then, then I think it's a winnable game for us. This is, Goodison Park is always, always tough and this is going to be tough, largely because of the circumstances in which we're playing it. But it, yeah. it's, it's, 
it should be it should be the best time or certainly the best season in a few years to go to Everton. Um, really, they're not as tight as they once were there. So we should look upon it as a great chance for three points. And let's face it, we absolutely have to do that if we've got any chance in the title race. We're playing first. So if we win, we can apply a little bit of pressure to the likes of Tottenham and Leicester um, if we can put that in their minds. Because I think Leicester looked like they were beginning to feel it a little bit um, against Newcastle on Monday night, that it was beginning to get in their heads. I think Tottenham have been like that for a few weeks, albeit they're at home to Bournemouth, and I'd expect them to win that. But if we can, if we, we're going first, if we put a marker down and win it, then um, you know things could get very interesting after the international break. So there you hear it. I, I can't disagree with any of that, except I think Tim misspoke, so I'll just correct you, Tim, because I think it was just a slip of the tongue. Um, he was saying we play first so we can put pressure on uh, City, United, and West Ham in our bid for top four, is what Tim was saying. Um, so, you know, just just a correction. Sorry, Tim. I know you Boo. slipped and you said Lester. Okay, sorry. Everybody throw rocks at their at their listening device. Um, anyway, thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Tim, I hope you've dried out. Paul, I hope you've dried out from St. Patrick's Day. And um, I hope everybody is having themselves a wonderful week. Uh, we will talk to you after Everton. Doesn't sound like Paul's going to be there, so we will find uh, someone with equally crappy internet so that the podcast has its usual feel and flow. Until then, cheers, and we look forward to speaking to you after another glorious Arsenal performance. 